The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Thursday, October 7th, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m. We are right on time today because Jack Balkan had not a single tech glitch in getting on. We were here early. We were expecting tech glitches because we've always had them in the past. But we invited him on and he magically appeared. There were no audio problems, uh, all of which is a harbinger of a perfect show. Uh, Kate has the monologue today. Kate, the floor is yours. Um, I just found out I had the monologue and Jack was overly excited and slash skeptical, which immediately gave rise to what I decided to talk about <laughs> since I had no idea that this was gonna happen, which was the time when I was starting at the ISP as a Redison Fellow before I had started my dissertation. So this would be in 2014. And uh, I had started going to ISP lunches and it was my first time really kind of in academia in this kind of moment of being an academic and not being a full-time student. And I think that like, I think it was actually like the second half of the year. And I went to have a meeting with Jack and talk about things. And Jack says, so you have excellent ideas. You have to get better at talking. <laughs> it was just like, and yeah. I was like, and I was like, ah, okay. And at this point, knowing that Jack was on my side and trusting him, I took this as constructive advice and like really someone telling me like with only my best interest at heart, like kind of like very frankly. And I did, Jack likes this story, I think. Cause like, I really was like, okay, what do you do to get better at talking? And I literally Googled it and was like, oh, Toastmasters. And I was like, well, that sounds corny and kind of dumb, but like, ah, there's like a meeting half a mile from my house. I'll start, like, I'll go. And I showed up to the meeting and it, I thought that it was kind of dumb. And I was like, this is so easy. I could do this. And then at the first meeting, they make you stand up and just introduce yourself and they count filler words. And not only was I just shaking like a leaf in front of this complete room of strangers, but I used six filler words in a 30 second, <laughs> in a 30 second introduction of myself, of which I know the subject quite well. And so uh, it was an amazing kind of experience and it gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of, I mean, I still think that the best way to get better at speaking is just to have the opportunity to do it over and over and over again. Um, and to kind of gain confidence and have people that you know aren't harshly judging your ideas because of how you're speaking, which is always very helpful. But I, I just, I, this was one of the best advice, pieces of advice to ever build to this moment where I'm forced on the spot to give a monologue. And with that, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. No. But we are allowed to have wonderful, wonderful, wonderful mentors like Jack Falcon, which all graduate school mentors should be like this. Literally, I remember John came home and I told him that he said that. He's like, that is a good mentor. He actually cares about you. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, yeah, 
I think that like that that's the type of advice that you tell someone you actually care about what happens to them. So thank you for that advice, Jack. It was really wonderful. My pleasure. And now look how great you are at public speaking. Yeah, right. I, I even yeah. have a talk show. That's right. That's Although true. today it's a singing show. The poll yes, is up about <laughs> what kind of song wanna... you want Jack Balkan to sing. Ooh. I have um, to tell you, Ben, in particular. I'm sorry? This is the greatest talk show in the universe, Ben. And I get emails from extraterrestrial creatures all the time about this talk show. They say they love you, they love Kate, they love the, the toy cannon. They're from different part, different galaxies all over the universe. They love your show. Okay. Uh, I am, look, we don't have a great Nielsen rating on Earth, but I'm <laughs> glad to know that and, uh, in and, other galaxies, and, and, uh, and they're tuning galaxy. in. Yeah, they don't show up in the chat and, or in the numbers because they're not. But yeah, we are the like the Stephen Colbert of uh, galaxies that are so far away they haven't even been named. Um, Not big I, in Japan, but huge in Neptune. Yeah. Like... <laughs> so I just want to point out that an improvised song about Facebook is winning our poll right now. Um, uh, <laughs> Handel is losing. Um, oh. Wow. Um, so uh, we will get to that once Kate uh, um, departs because she doesn't want to hear us sing. But um, I want to so, save it for later. I just want to come back and watch the end of the show and see what happened while I was gone. <laughs> so I understand you wanted to talk about the Facebook files. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, in verse, of course, we want, well, and with but melody. We, so everyone is pretty familiar with them at this point. We've talked about them on the show before we did a, I did a kind of a summary of it and took questions last Thursday. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. So we're talking about it. We have the event that's happening shortly um, with Francis Haugen, um, which will be excellent, I think, and a lot of other amazing people, um, including yourself. Um, but I'm kind of interested. Do you like everyone's kind of talking now? And I was just with, on, on NPR today with Phil, Phil Weiser, uh, the Colorado AG, talking about whether or not this was the big tobacco moment. And I really for big tech, I loathe this comparison for lots of reasons but i do think it gets to the central idea of like we've had a bunch of scandals is this one different and i'm curious if you if you think that it is jack i don't i actually don't think this scandal is the tipping point i think but it's just a, a it's a trail of scandals that will at some point lead to reform but uh the real question is always in washington whether or not you can get uh, enough votes to do anything, whether you can uh, uh, basically agree on something. And right now, the problem is that both the left and the right um, both don't like big tech, but sometimes they don't like it for different reasons. And so that's going to have an effect on the kinds of reforms. So it's actually likely that the most likely reforms will occur actually outside of Congress. They'll occur with the FTC, for example. You know, so Lena Khan's work at the FTC may be actually where stuff happens first. Also in Europe, where, in fact, they're actually are able to produce regulations. So, you know, Congress is going to be the last uh, to get involved in this. So I want to, uh, I would have agreed with that until yesterday mm -hmm. when I listened to the Senate Commerce Committee hearing with the whistleblower. 
And it was the first hearing on any subject that I had listened to in quite a while when I could not tell the difference by questions between the Republicans and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And that is radically different from the big tech hearings of only a few weeks ago when Democrats would ask questions like, why are you letting Russians interfere in the election and elect Donald Trump? And right. Republicans would, would ask questions like, why are you discriminating against conservatives and amplifying far left, you know, uh, communist content and, and you know, <clears throat> removing good, wholesome, conservative white supremacist content? Um, and um, well, that was like the tone of it only like a few weeks ago. And now, yes, yesterday or two days ago at this hearing, People seemed uh, reasonably, the questions were dramatically more sophisticated than they had been. Uh, people seemed engaged and they seem roughly oriented around the same small number of relatively non-political questions like uh, is uh, algorithmic uh, 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 um, uh, uh, you know, is, is amplification as a result of engagement uh, causing, you know, girls to commit suicide, right? Is, um, right, these are questions that you couldn't really tell the difference between Warner and Marsha Blackburn about, except no. by accent. Um, the only question I want to ask you is this. Okay, let's, I, I saw it, I agree with you. But when you asked Marsha Blackburn and... Um, 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 and uh, uh, Schatz, uh, what is your proposed solution? Really, the question will be whether or not they'll offer the same solution. Well, well but, but but don't you think that once once they agree on the nature of the problem, um, the that will be at least a little bit disciplining as to the nature of the solution. I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, I mean. <laughs> It, it, it may well be that Schatz's view is you need comprehensive privacy reform and you need to break up uh, the large companies and you need to separate, or, or in my view, you need to separate out their advertising brokerages from brokering from their, um, uh, uh, from the social media. And it might be Marsha Blankburn says, well, let's just repeal section 230. So you see, in other words, they might agree the same problem, but they might have very different views about what actually is the, is the appropriate remedy. That's really the next step. That's the point where where I'm going to be on your side of this once they once they coalesce around something. And of course, there's always a possibility to coalesce around a really bad reform that, in fact, is not going to achieve what they wanted to achieve. In fact, in fact, the the there, there is nothing more inherently suspect, in my view, than broad bipartisan agreement. <laughs> OK. I, I do think that, I, so this is a great point. Um, and I think that there's, I think that this is also something that I thought was By the way, this is the day, this is the day that Ben comes out against the Voting Rights Act of 2006. I just want to say uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, was, is no longer a matter of broad bipartisan agreement. I know, I, I'm joking because in fact it was, it was repeatedly, uh, uh, repeatedly reenacted by broad bipartisan majorities for many, many years. Yes, and, so, and uh, you, I didn't it, say broad bipartisan majorities in the past. I'm just saying anything that both parties can agree on right now 
there's, you know, like, I want to know whose hand's in my pocket. Kate, back to you. I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, it's fine. I so no, I think that but like I think that you're that this is I think that this is exactly right. That there's I saw Francis's testimony as they had been bringing in people from such high levels in the company as to be almost worthless because they were so out of touch with the actual workings of of, of the company and what was going on. And so the her, she's she's an ex, she's in she's very well versed, even like and she's done her research, even in areas she was able to talk intelligently, even in areas that she hasn't worked in because she did her research while she was there and um, has talked to smart people since then. Um, and I think that that's great. And I think that we definitely needed that. But I do really worry that like, so so let's just take for one, like a quick second, the, the idea that's taken hold right now, which is just this, this idea that she really kind of was dramatic about in the hearings about the outrage that the platforms generate and foment and everything else. Mm -hmm. And the idea that this is all based on kind of this surveillance capitalism ad tech model, okay? So let's talk about what's not new here, which is that news was something you've written about so convincingly in the past. And you basically taught me, but like that there is this idea that like newspapers and all of this journalism are able to provide a public good to the public by by basically subsidizing it with ad technology, with like with ad placements in like a newspaper so yeah. that like you could basically for 50 cents a boot black and a banker could buy the same paper and get the same product because like they're all willing to see the ads mm -hmm. and so that's actually like a public good but it also means of course that we had an era like the pulitzer and hertz kind of era where they were fighting and you supplied the war and i'll supply the headline or whatever it was the other way around and the idea that like of course there was going to be this kind of thing. And I was thinking the other day that like this, of course, this isn't different. And maybe this is this new informational technology. And the algorithm is content neutral, so to speak. The algorithm is giving, no one's talking about it, but the algorithm is also pushing puppies at you on Facebook. It is mm -hmm. pushing cute, engaging content. Probably because the, the algorithm is measuring your behavior. Mm -hmm. In relation to the content, it is not capable of judging the content itself, really. Like unless, and like unless the behavior is linked to a specific person who has who has established a behavior over time, and has like a, like an influencer or something like that. And so, I guess my point here is that like it's a little bit like saying if nobody is watching, everyone's reading the National Enquirer and nobody is reading the New York Times. And like, why don't we have, like, why don't we push the good stuff? Why don't you make us eat our broccoli Facebook? And I guess I'm kind of just like not seeing, or you're not, I'm kind of, I've like muddled you're a bunch of ideas here. But like, going. I want, but these There's are some two different arguments. directions you were going. Yeah. I just want to know which one you're going to. One is, not is sure. reg regulation of algorithms is content neutral regulation and therefore poses no First Amendment problems. I thought you might be going in that direction. And then there was, it might be. <laughs> yeah, the other was eat your vegetables, folks. Why can't Facebook make us eat our vegetables? Uh, that's a different issue, it seems to no, me. No, so I actually don't think they are. So I think that this is the, the reality, the descriptive reality of what is going on is that yeah. people assume that Facebook is already making us kind of eat our vegetables, that they're picking, cherry picking outrageous content. 
but the the actual thing is that Facebook is just reflecting back to us our own selection of outrageous and viral content. Okay, and so, I, will that. I will disagree with that. Okay. So go for it. The the most important point here is that it is true that algorithms reflect, but there are many ways to reflect back a person through an algorithm. There are many ways to characterize a person's preferences and tastes through the use of an algorithm. So it's not just like a mirror where you look at it and depending on how the mirror is cut or ground, you get a certain kind of reflection. No, the algorithm is protean, just like every other uh, part of the internet. And so the algorithm can mirror you in many, many different ways. Yeah. And it's that choice, which is the choice that's being made by the company. And they're mirroring you in such a way as to be the kind of person who is more likely to stay on board and click on more ads. That's the kind of person they want to capture in their algorithms. Whatever that kind of person you are is, that, that's the portrait of you they want. That's what they're going to play to. Okay, and so that's I'm- a neutral account. That's not a neutral account of what you are. I want to ask Fair. a okay. tectonic pre-regulatory question. So, uh, the whistleblower whose last name, like Haugen? Haugen. Haugen, which I, I have trouble remembering for some reason, Francis Haugen, um, had this assumption throughout her testimony that mm -hmm. engagement-based ranking is bad. And engagement-based ranking is bad because uh, it, uh, privileges all kinds of things uh, like, you know, like anger and um, and I want to just ask the question whether it's related to the point that you're making, mm -hmm. whether we think that's right. So is it inherently wrong for Facebook to say we're going to build a a hierarchy in everybody's feed based on how much engagement a given post gets. Uh, and that's going to be the dominant value. Now, leave aside that they're doing it because that's what makes them the most money. Mm -hmm. um, let's grant that, that that's why they chose that. Is there something ethically or morally wrong with the choice the value that our feed is promoting content based on is how much people engage with it. No, not um, necessarily. It, again, that, that fact that we have an engagement-based algorithm covers a huge, a wide range of different ways of organizing the feed. Uh, and indeed, as Kate was just saying to me the other, uh, you know, maybe it was yesterday, uh, that's if you know if if a broadcast media could do that, they would do that. They try to do it as much as possible. Uh, they try to create. In, in fact, they use social media as a surrogate through which to figure out. You know, Kate shows up on MSNBC and they tweet a thing of her, and the more likes it, it gets, yeah. the more likely they are to have her back. Um, yeah. you know. So I, I just noticed somebody in the feed said that they use Twitter in the chronological mode instead of the, the organized mode, that is to, uh, which, and you just get a different experience. In fact, that's how I experience Twitter too. I experience chronologically. Uh, and is it the case, uh, uh, Kate, that on Facebook you can choose chronological ordering? 
or are you are you locked into their feed? You're locked into their feed. I mean, you can unfollow things. You can choose. It's a little arduous, and they make it a little sticky and friction, like filled with like a little bit of friction there. But yes, you can unfollow things, and that takes them out. But you can unfollow. So, in fact, there was a great Slate article today that Jamil Jaffer sent me that was like basically uh, this Slate article that was a very Mike Masnick protocols, not platforms right. type of idea that was like. Facebook banned me because I made a Chrome extension that allowed everyone to start from ground zero where they had no follows in their timeline and then they could just add follows slowly. Oh, all right. So, and like they banned my tool and gave, sent me a cease and desist order. This is beautiful. Yes. This will take us into an interesting way of answering Ben's question. So, Ben, just bear with me. It'll take several steps. Mm -hmm. So the Masnick idea is essentially that there doesn't have to be any particular way in which content moderation occurs. And it doesn't even have to be done by Facebook. It could be done by lots of people. And it could be companies that do this moderation. So if you want, uh, so what makes it possible is a change in the interoperability rules. So that in fact, lots of folks who are not Facebook can be interoperable with Facebook at different parts of the, of the application. Now, if it were the case that we created that structure that is that lots of folks could provide moderation services. A lot of folks could organize a feed. We wouldn't be so upset about the fact that feeds could be organized uh, so as to, uh, you know, to produce effects on audiences because people would get a choice of their feeds and people would. And, and so it wouldn't be the case that everybody in the world was getting a particular amped up feed as designed by the best researchers at Facebook. That is to say, one key way of dealing with the problem, which I suspect Congress is not going to focus on, is to encourage pluralism in the organization of the digital public sphere so that there are lots of social media companies. The social media companies each allow you to have lots of different ways of organizing your feed and content, and they interoperate with each other so that, in fact, you're not locked in to one small social media company. And that's a design point. It's a point about how you design the space of companies. And that takes you in a very different direction than simply saying, I don't like algorithmic feeds. You're, you're, you're muted. I know, sorry. So yes, I think that that's, I think that that's right. Um, I, I also lo love this idea. Um, I think that there's a bunch of, I think that this is the way it hopefully if we if we manage to get kind of a, any type of congressional change around this it would be awesome if it came in in this type of form in the form of kind of enabling um interoperability between platforms or like kind of the middleware that mike talks about and you just described that allows people to build on top of existing platforms and modify and them in francis fukuyama has a paper on this too so yeah but the point is it's not a, it's, you know, people have already thought of it. It's not a, a, a brand new idea. It could be operationalized, but it actually requires Congress to go in a different direction than they're currently going in right now. Uh, so okay. where do you so, think that it's currently going? I think they're going toward content regulation, either forbidding content regulation why? or requiring content regulation. But why? Well, because uh, Section 230 is low-hanging fruit. Uh, or it's but an easy is, target. But this is my problem, that people are like failing to, to, we have a bunch of smart people. These ideas are not new. We've thought about it for a long time. They're proving to yeah. be the the things that new smart people, people are people who used to argue for other things are now coming around to, like these ideas of middleware and interoperability. 
so like this all signs point to these should be the solutions. They're not being made the solutions. And the reason they're not being made the solutions is because there are no incentives in place for Congress people to actually legislate in a reasonable way and not in a way that like doesn't like just score them political points with some type of like with a more kind of egregious type of like package that makes it look like they're busting up big tech in some mm -hmm. like, you know, and section 230 has weirdly been branded as the way to ruin big tech and to come at like we, at big tech. And so this is actually kind of part of the thing that makes me really frustrated and gets me a little, I don't know, gets me a little, my normal optimistic self that if we just keep working hard enough, we'll like be able to so, convince example, people. I was looking, I was looking in the feed. And one of the people said, well, let's just make them publishers so people can sue them. Fine. But that's just basically getting rid of Section 230. Yes. So now it's about content regulation. And I don't have a problem with modifying Section 230. For example, if you basically know that you're engaged in illegal conduct, this is Ben's article. This is the article you did with Daniel Citrin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. this is Ben's oh, you're engaged in but it's but it's producing. totally not responsive to this problem. No, no. I, what I'm just trying to say is I don't have a problem with modifying Section 230. I'm just saying that Section 230 is not the problem we're worried about. The problem but, we're worried about is who controls the feed. But this is, is what, or is it? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Finish your sentence. I didn't mean to interrupt. Is it a monopoly? Is a small number of people control the feed? Or is the feed basically something that lots of people participate in? There are lots of choices. And in fact, you don't have, if I can use the expression, a single culture, a single culture of moderation that is structuring public discourse. So, so that I take that point. But I guess my point is that I find it very disheartening that what Ben said is exactly right. His solution doesn't get to the problem of the algorithm at all or like yeah. anything else around that. It's aimed at a different problem. But, it was but not. We, will, we weren't thinking about this problem at all. No, but we but my article. point is, is that the is that I I do believe that politicians and the media will hold up if that becomes the thing that like people congeal around. They will hold it up as if it is a solution to this problem when it is absolutely non-responsive. And that yeah. is kind of like that is the thing that is so disheartening to me because of like just like the intellectual dishonesty in it. And I like I that is the part that I find frustrating. And maybe mm -hmm. I'm just like naive to expect differently. We had Ross um, Chite on from Brown University political scientist the other day. He was he had this great line. I mean, I've heard it before, but he was he reminded me of it. And I, I'm reminded of kind of all of the First Amendment classes that I took with you, Jack, and everything else, which was like the worst, like the worst laws are the laws that have names, like especially after children, like they're named after children because they're oh. passed out of this place of outrage and out of this place. And they don't actually end up putting in place mm -hmm. measures that prevent the problem that created the harm that they were intended to deal with. They just band-aid something completely different. And so like, I guess this is what, I guess I just care too much about this and I just don't want to see that happen yeah. with this I, in this I, moment but that if you do antitrust reform and if you do interoperability reform you also have to do privacy reform at the same time because um interoperability will create all sorts of new privacy problems yes yeah. so the problem is we don't have comprehensive privacy digital privacy in the united states and that will be a very heavy lift getting through congress mm -hmm. um and so i'm you know i'm of the view that there are all these different things you have to do um, part of the reason why you have the problem of, of 
uh, algorithmic feeds that uh, uh, that the whistleblower is talking about is because of the data collection system, the data collection and use system that we have in the United States, which is part of surveillance capitalism. So that has to be regulated as well. Okay, and, but wait a minute. Now, now you're losing me because well, I thought I would. I knew at some point there would be a divergence of uh, uh, yes. Of, uh, because what you're saying now is everything's interconnected, and so you kind of have to do everything to do anything. No, and that I, is that is really I, not I the way Congress can, works. I'll do as many things as I can, but I just want to point out to you that when you do antitrust reform, you're going to have privacy problems that will be unaddressed. Let me give you an example. So you have one big Facebook now, and it practices surveillance capitalism. Now we break it up into 50 little Facebooks. Each of the 50 little Facebooks is doing surveillance capitalism. Even worse, because they no longer have such market power, they are going to be even engaged in more cutthroat behavior in order to collect the most data. I told you that. Well, we agree. <laughs> because in the, in the, you know, I don't know if this is the slogan that I, that I told you before, but in the algorithmic society, the person who gets the most data wins. So, right. That's the slogan. The person with the most data wins. I don't so know. If, Lawfare collects no data and we're doing just great. I know you have over. <laughs> we have hundreds of people a day. <laughs> we have, I don't want to I don't want to laugh at Lawfare like I don't think it's great. Like that's like anyways. Sorry. But but continue, Jack. Sorry. You know, it's just, I'm just, I was just saying that I, as you, as Ben probably knows, and I'm certain that Kate knows, I have been very concerned about our lack of comprehensive private, uh, privacy legislation in the United States for a very, very long time. And, and I, I, although I'm totally down with competition law reforms, I think com more competition is better. And so I'm totally down with that. I think that it has, you also have to have privacy law. Uh, you have to have digital privacy law. And it's also tied to a point that, um, uh, Nate personally was uh, just uh, did the other day about you know, algorithmic transparency. That's tied to privacy regulation because privacy regulation is really consumer protection, at least in the digital. That, that when we're talking about privacy, what we're really talking about is consumer protection. That is the collection of data, the collection of data about us, and then the use of that data in ways that might be manipulative or against the interest of end users. So that that is called privacy, but it's really consumer protection. So can I ask a, a follow-up question on this? Because we keep kind of coming, or you can keep bringing up the idea, and I think that I've brought this up a number of times, that the idea of, and you said consumer protection, we have an agency for that, right? And we have an agency for, for communications. Like, we have these agencies. Should there be a new agency, Jack? Like, should there be, like, this is something that, like, Francis brought up. There have been a number of calls, like I just had a bunch of like, I said this on Twitter and a bunch of libertarian people jumped down my throat about it, to use existing agencies, don't make more government, don't make a bigger government. I get it, right? But like, I also just think that some of these are, they're, you know, this is well, just too much I mean, for like one I, for any, yeah. Creating a new agency is not necessarily a solution. You could just beef up the FTC. But as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, on this. My understanding is the F FTC's enforcement power is largely through bringing litigation and not through creating rules. Is that right? They don't have rulemaking function authority. As a functional, but no, it has some rulemaking authority, but as a functional matter, its regulatory power comes from right. unfair trade practices litigation so, and, uh, and, and other 
uh, and other consent protection litigation. Yes, yes consent, consent decrees. decrees. So that would mean that if you were going to put it into the FTC, actually the agency would get much bigger, but you'd also have to give it rulemaking authority. And it would have to use rulemaking authority in, you know, in a lot, in, in a big way. So it would change the nature of the agency. It would be a different agency than the FTC that we now have. Um, and I, I would not put the FCC in charge of it, actually. I, I would, if I was going to expand an agency, it would be the FTC, not the FCC. I agree with that 100%. I, I'm, I'm saying I think that that's what most reasonable people are arguing, but I still think it would mean there's no way the FTC, both because of rulemaking and because of its size, has the and because of its lack of expertise, has the ability to do this as a like right now, or even with or without expanding it broadly. Yeah, but I just want to say, if the if the problem is lack of expertise, there are lots of people in the United States who have the necessary expertise. If you are actually willing to renovate and expand this agency and make it the agency in charge of questions such as, uh, you know, uh, pro digital privacy, algorithmic transparency, uh, inspection, things like that compliance, you know, you, you might have a set of rules that for which companies had to comply. But again, I just want to go back to where I started. Uh, unless you have competition reform, in addition, then what you're basically doing is you're allowing a very, very large company to stay a very, very large company. Um, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, All right. I just, yeah. Let's go to audience questions. Uh, Richard Wattenbarger, I really want to know how you voted in the poll. Oh, I, I was very, I voted very conservatively. I went, I went with Schubert. Mm. What yeah. was the poll for? The poll was, do you want to hear Jack Balkan sing, uh, Handel, Schubert, Cole Porter, or an improvised song about Facebook? The latter of which is winning overwhelmingly. So just warning you, you're going to have to improvise a song about Facebook later on. Facebook is That's all the Schubert I've got for you. That'll work. That'll work. I was thinking, what is Facebook? Who controls this giant algorithm? That's pretty good here. <laughs> so kate you, you thought you weren't gonna get it you got it you got Schubert i know and... i'm gonna break into kiss me kate in like one second <laughs> brush up your zuckenberger <laughs> quoting so start algorithm no, okay. but richard. All right, richard your question so this is this has nothing to do with facebook but i um i've read some of your um uh, Recently, I've read some of your uh, articles on uh, music law and textual interpretation, and uh, they're great. I, you know, I found that um, so, so I, I'm a musicologist by training, and so when I was um, when I was in grad school, I, you know, I started thinking about these same sort of things, but from the from the musicology side, and I thought, oh, wow, this is what I've been thinking and saying all these years. I'm glad somebody's out there. Uh, out there doing this. I'm wondering if you have plans to revisit that and or work, do any more writing yeah. in that area? So Sandy Levinson and I, my very dear friend, we've been co-authors for many years. We wrote these uh, that stuff in the 90s. I think I wrote, you know, and then I wrote something like about oh, almost 10 years ago uh, called Verity's High C. And we promised each other we would write this up into a book. 
And it's one of the many books, as I was talking to Kate before the show began, that I have not yet finished yet. But, but at some point, if I can persuade Sandy to get excited about it again, uh, yeah, we will finish our book. Uh, uh, in fact, we signed a contract with Oxford University Press to write this book. And that was 30 years ago, I think. <laughs> the book has never come out, but yeah. I would love to. How do you sleep at night? I would like, like I would like have a thirty-year Oxford University Press contract book contract hanging over my head. Well, you know the... uh, well more like twenty-five years, but you get the idea. Do you remember yeah. the, bear, the bear plays jazz? What's that? Do you remember the bear plays jazz? No, tell me about this. So this was uh, I forget the details of this. Somebody in the Greek chorus will remember it. Uh, was a novel uh, that. I think Norton signed in the 70s about uh -huh. a bear, like a black bear that yeah. uh, played saxophone and kind of lived in lower Manhattan and was kind of a, um, and it was with an unknown writer, but he'd written a few chapters of it. Right. Um, and uh, they signed him and then he had writer's block for like 30 years. Yeah. And finally they had completely forgotten about the contract shows up. Uh, I don't want to say like 2000 ish with the manuscript. Yeah. Um, and they published it and it was, uh, something, you know, it was, it was a hit. So it's a, it's a happier story than Kate's John Kennedy O'Toole story. Uh, cause he actually did live to see the bear plays jazz. Uh, which I'm, the title of which I'm sure I'm getting wrong. Um, oh, I but, love um, this story. I'm going to go read this book. It was it's a, it was lovely. This um, is going to be your Verity and C or like whatever or not Verity and C, but this but this book is going to be it's going to end up being your social media book, Jack. They're just going to well, you're just going to find that's... a way to loop them together. Yeah, the social media book or this book. I mean, I actually only need to write a couple more chapters for the music book. It's just you know getting Sandy excited about writing it. Sandy's now working on why the Constitution is bad and we need a new one. So that's mostly what he works on these days. Yeah, so Sounds like it needs a lot of work. <laughs> Sorry, I got the title of the book wrong. It's called The Bear Comes Home uh, from 1998. And the yeah. bear, yeah, the bear plays saxophone and has a human girlfriend. Um, uh, and uh, I don't really remember much more about it than that. Sounds like it uh, got ripped off by like Roger Rabbit or something. I feel like that's like the. <laughs> Sorry. And I did uh, get the publisher right. It was Norton. Okay. Anyway, I'm really fascinated by it. Just to, just a close circle. I'm really fascinated by the relationship between musical interpretation, dramatic interpretation, and the interpretation of legal texts. I think they're just overlap in so many interesting ways, and the and and depending upon the form of genre you have, you can have so much more freedom interpret and then there are some genres where you're not allowed to do very much freedom at all in interpreting yeah. so, Tom McGuckin whose consumption of whiskey looks, looks looks like it's, it's characterized by freedom. freedom yeah you know it's so funny this sort of brought uh, what do you call it goosebumps back to me uh, this conversation because let's just say pre-Kate I stood on the dorm roof at Pomona College in the late 60s and screamed yeah, yeah. they're trying to control our minds and uh it was so funny because out of the darkness came back this reply who cares <laughs> and uh that's you know i'm an economist i'm trained in this concept it's a dumb concept 
called consumer sovereignty, where the consumer is in charge, they dictate the, uh, the demand and that controls the market, blah, blah, blah. But you guys are onto something that I don't really understand with this Facebook. And I just want to ask you this algorithm business. I, you know, I've been around AI for a long time. Uh, it's an iterative learning process, right? Okay, the computers are still stupid digital machines. But are you saying that this is somehow enhanced what the marketing whole marketing departments have been trying to do forever and that is to get people to do things control their buying behavior any different than what advertising and everybody does already uh, you're saying that this is fundamentally different and i don't really understand that yet okay so is that mm -hmm. a dumb question or not it's no it's very question. Exactly it's a very, very good question i think it's exactly so, the question so consumer sovereignty is premised on the fact that consumers will choose things that increase their utility uh, or satisfy their preferences. And the assumption is if we sum up all of these individual decisions, we'll have a net increase in uh, value, utility, wealth, whatever, however you want to measure it, depending consumer on your Consumer welfare? Depending on your theory. I don't want to get yeah. into the... Yep, the yep, yep, yep. Sorry. Um, but suppose I had the ability to actually... Uh, 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 limit uh, your uh, limit your or change your preferences in a certain way. In other words, I wasn't simply a taker of your preferences, but I could actually construct your preferences. Then, in that sense, the consumer sovereignty model would not necessarily tell us what was the the maximization of consumer welfare, because you would no longer be in control of your preferences. The market or the market actor would basically be creating your preferences. And the market actor, there could be an externality problem, which is I might choose to create your preferences in such a way that undermines some, your health or your family relationships or democracy or some other. Uh, or, man, or plays on your weaknesses, manipulates you in some way, yeah. like in ways that we like, we, why we don't allow like payday, like, you know, why we don't allow, you know, why we disallow payday loans type of, or like not payday, yeah, like a higher interest rate, where we regulate certain types of consumer regulation in this way. Yeah, but it's a really important question to think about it economically. So in a, in a successful democracy, there are any number of public goods that will be underproduced, almost by definition, by a, even a well-functioning market. Um, just because they're public goods. And it turns out that many of these public goods are necessary, one, to have a well-working public sphere of discussion, uh, and two, have a well-working public sphere necessary for democracy, because you know democracy is a public good. Uh, and because Facebook is focused primarily on growth and profit, um, it's basically gonna push all these costs onto the rest of society, and other people have to pay for them, and Facebook doesn't have to internalize any of these costs. So if you if you want to make, I know this is a very strange analogy, but if you want to imagine the analogy, the best analogy would be pollution, the classic externality, uh, cost that a factory basically throws off onto the rest of society, and it doesn't have to internalize those costs. Um, I, I'm very, I, I offer that very delicately for the following reason. I'm also a First Amendment scholar, and we don't like those kinds of analogies in the context of speech. Uh, but there are folks who work on the pollution analogy in the context of, of privacy. And they've argued that, that privacy is a kind of 
public or a problem that transcends individual decision making so that the environmental analogy is better. Can I can I just say really quickly that as long as we're here, like, can we just stop and say that if the pollution analogy is the one you want to go to and what you're afraid of is regulation of certain types of speech, Jack, like, like one of the more progressive ways of dealing with things like pollution is to like levy a, a Pagobian type of tax, make the people who do the harms pay into the solution um, when there are huge amounts of kind of. So this is the idea that uh that the people who like that you're going to put a very and this taxes on consumers uh mm -hmm. that you you know if you're going to drive a car and you're going to drive a giant giant tank of a car you can choose to do it but you're going to pay nine dollars a gallon for gas instead of three and yeah. that six dollar extra six dollars a gallon is going to go towards offsetting the pollution that you create from your from your machine Right, as Jeff right. Tom said, tax carbon. There have been proposals to tax um, behavioral advertising. I am un—I mean, I can be convinced. I'm not sure that taxing behavioral advertising solves the problem. No, that I don't think so either. Particular but... person was worried about. I have to take off, but I will see you shortly, Jack. Bye. And... Right. The, oh, try not the, to the, sing, try the not to song sing. fest no, will begin yeah, momentarily. Yeah, Charles, don't let them sing too much. I won't, I won't. Uh, so I guess my question is, what are the impediments to uh, GDPR-like, uh, you know, legal infrastructure in the U.S.? Obviously, we, we couldn't, in the U.S., couldn't impose the same penalties as the EU does for GDPR violations, but I guess why is a GDPR-type a bill not politically viable in the U.S. Do you do you think? Okay, I mean that's so actually a great. I have question. some thoughts on that too. Go go Why first, you, and then I'll. I'll, no, I'll you, I've, I've talked enough. Why don't you start, and then I'll just I'll pile on. How's that? So I have a few reactions to that. The first is that GDPR is a very kind of continental European civil code kind of approach, right? It's. Uh, I don't know if you've ever actually like looked at it. It's it's a voluminous catalog like document mm -hmm. that tries to uh, uh, anticipate a lot of situations. Uh, that kind of isn't the way we our more typical way of making rules is to say, okay, here's the policy objective here's the broad rule and here's a regulatory agency that we empower to make rules in pursuit of it. So the first thing I'd say about GDPR is it's mostly just not a very U.S. kind of, it, it's very German or French in, in its, I don't mean that as a criticism, but in its sort of mm -hmm. style of, of rulemaking, it's, not, it's very not us. The second thing is that Europe, for one reason or another, has much greater agreement about the substance of privacy regulation than we do. Mm -hmm. um, we, um, uh, Europe, consciously or unconsciously, made a decision a number of years ago that they don't actually want big tech companies. And the result is they don't have any. Um, uh, they're very concerned about uh, large private private sector data collections. Mm -hmm. And so, if you think about the big 
you know, the big data-based tech companies, none of them is European, uh, which isn't mm -hmm. to say that European countries don't collect data. They do. Mm -hmm. um, but there aren't really European countries that are built on data in, in the same way. They tend to... Actually, they... actually, all, at this point, all companies uh, are built on data. It's just that the biggest ones that we're talking about now are American companies. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, 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 as I say, it's not that European country companies don't collect data, but it would be hard to be a American style Silicon Valley company based in, uh, like, although, as you know, Facebook has, has, uh, you know, is, is there in Ireland. Yes. Uh, and they're, very... and they get sued constantly. And it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, not a great, the EU is not a great operating environment for them. Well, all right. So that, all right. So let me add some things to what you just said. So the, in some ways, the GDPR has some good things that we could actually adopt in the United States. And there are some things that it's actually not good enough for what we need. And there are some things for which it goes too far. So I'll go in reverse order. It goes too far in the right to be forgotten. I don't think the right to be forgotten is constitutionally possible in the United States, at least as the uh, as the European courts have, have uh, articulated it. Um, um, I, there's a question as to, uh, it's based on a conception, of, uh, there's lots in the GDPR, but one element is the informed consent. You have to have informed consent before you do anything, but a lot of this will depend on whether or not, uh, what is, how informed you have to be uh, before you consent, but it's still a consent model. And lots of privacy problems can't be captured in a consent uh, notice and consent model because there are lots of third party effects. So in other words, my choices about privacy or my decisions affect lots and lots of other people who have no say in the decisions I make. So that a simple notice and consent model, even if it's informed consent, as the GDPR do, uh, is, uh, is not going to be sufficient. All right. And then finally, there are some good things in the GDPR uh, requiring, for example, privacy by design. Uh, requiring forms of, of regulation of algorithms, which would I think would be constitutional, but nevertheless, they actually are taking it very seriously, uh, how you would in fact uh, engage in uh, a regulatory scheme for algorithms. So there are some good things we could borrow. There are some things we certainly would not want to borrow. There are things that don't go far enough. And I also would agree with Ben that it would not look the same. It would be a very different structure the way it would be enforced would be very different. Um, and um, you and it wouldn't be comprehensive. Oh, it would have to be comprehensive. It oh, no way. I mean, well, I... the problem is the problem is that um, the problem of surveillance capitalism, right, the data collection and monetizing data collection is not simply limited to social media companies. It's every company. All once you have the Internet of Things, uh, which is increasingly part of our lives, you have surveillance capitalism everywhere, and therefore you need privacy regulation and consumer protection everywhere. So I here I disagree with you. Yeah. So because, I, I I just want to, I think we may be arguing past one another. Mm -hmm. If your point is to be effective, it would have to be comprehensive. I don't know that I disagree with that. I don't think there's a chance in hell of Congress passing a piece of regulation or legislation that purports to be as comprehensive as the GDPR mm -hmm. for the simple reason that I don't think we have anything like the social agreement. By the way, I don't know that the GDPR 
could have passed the legislature of many of the countries that are members of the EU. It wasn't, you know, it, it's a regulatory enactment of, of, of Brussels, not of, you know, it's, not... It builds on, it builds on uh, previous features of European uh, uh, consumer protection regulation. But of European, European, uh, of, of central... The, 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 the individual states, the privacy, I should just say, as a result of World War II, privacy is much, there's much more common consensus in Europe on the importance of privacy. It's tied to uh, World War II, it's tied to the, it's tied to the end of communism, it's also tied to um, uh, the European focus on dignity. To on individual totally dignity. agree, yeah. and yet a code that dense, that specific, that offensive to the interests of constituent uh, entities in every single one of the member countries um, would have been very difficult to pass as a matter of domestic legislation in any one of those countries, except maybe Germany, um, which uh, is a more complex, you know, is, is really committed in, in, in this space. Um, but to pass it, you had to have very large numbers of unelected people issue it as a kind of a, a, a agreed upon edict of the central organization rather than the constituent democratic assemblies of any of the member states. And that's the way they do a lot of complicated regulatory stuff in Europe. It works for them. I'm not criticizing it. There's no way in hell you get a code that detailed or that specific through Congress. I think we really, this does, this does take us back where we started our discussion about what kinds of, even though we now may have people on the same side, on the left and the right, thinking something must be done, the question is, will they in fact be able to do something that's necessary to solve the problems before us? And I, I think you've just given testimony as to why that might not be the case. So look, I, if we, I, I would bet my left foot that we will not have comprehensive privacy legislation, if by comprehensive you mean comprehensive in the sense that the GDPR is comprehensive. If we have comprehensive privacy legislation, it'll look like this. Um, Congress declares that privacy is really important. Here are mm -hmm. five privacy rules and we create or declare that the FTC is now a privacy regulatory agency with a broad public interest mandate to make rules effectuating these, um, you know, these five yeah. rules or ten. It will look like it will look like any other number of American agencies that have relatively broad mandates and then are set loose to figure out how best to realize the mandate. Right. So, okay, I don't think we're disagreeing then. Yeah. If you want to call that comprehensive privacy legislation a la the GDPR, then oh, I, 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 I could see we could do that. Yeah. But if you mean that we would pass a, you know, a code like the GDPR, it's incomprehensible to me. Yeah. It, by comprehensive, I simply meant that the problem of, dig, of collection and monetization of privacy is, uh, is in most industries that touch consumers now in your car, in your home, um, 
you name it, uh, you, you have a bunch of issues of data collection and data monetization. And so just focusing on social media companies will not be enough. Indeed, this is my favorite example. It, you, it may have puzzled you guys out there why Google has so many free services, free maps, you know, they have the Android phones, they have, uh, they have a free email, they have free docs, free uh, spreadsheets, you name it, they have free stuff. Why? Because they're all methods of collecting data on you. And uh, so they're all methods of monetizing the collection of data. So it's, this is what I tell my students. You should think of Facebook and Google as surveillance companies that do social media and search on the side. Uh, that's the best way of understanding what these companies are. We are going to leave it there uh, because I promised Jack we would end so that he could be at Kate's event at six. Good. We will be back tomorrow. It'll be cheese night. Jack Balkin, you are a great American. You should join us for cheese night sometime. Um, right. uh, that'll be 23 hours and four minutes from now. And until then, we don't have fun anymore but we can still disguise surveillance operations as uh, social media. And that means that all is not yet lost. Okay. Thank you very much. See you, ben. See you soon. Bye -bye.